Hi, folks. Thank you for joining us for uh, Wednesday night equip. And uh, we're glad to have you with us. And those that are in the room, we've had some uh, interesting questions about um, soul sleep and gospel conversations, how to point uh, people asking questions, where to point them towards in the Bible, uh, and, and even a question about vampire lore. So <laughs> you never know what's going to come up, right? Uh, I want to pray for us uh, as we get started uh, this evening. God, I do thank you for... Um, being with us and allowing us to gather, and we certainly don't take that for granted anymore, uh, the ability to, uh, to be in a room uh, with like-minded people, with the congregation of God, with um, the, the fellowship of the saints we recognize is, uh, is sweet for us. And so I'm grateful to be here and to be able to talk about your word and how we study it and, and uh, digest it. Um, would you um, would you bless our time? We thank you for those that are joining us live uh, online uh, through our streaming platforms, or watching this later, or listening to it on podcast. And we're grateful for that technology to be able to uh, open that door as well. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, Amen. So last week uh, we transitioned away from talking about. Uh, the Bible as a whole, as far as history and compilation uh, and some basic uh, uh, interpreting or hermeneutic, which is the art and science of interpreting the Bible, uh, some basic hermeneutic principles uh, towards thinking about the specific genres of the Bible. And I intend to do this. This is going to be the second of four weeks uh, where we're talking about Bible genre. Uh, what you're going to see, I'm going to mention a couple of things today that we really just don't have uh, time to, to go over uh, because th- this really is, is survey level. Um, th- this is, we could, we could spend um, uh, more than one equip session on each one of these genres, and I'm trying to do three today. Last week we did two. Uh, We began, spent most of our time talking about biblical narrative. Uh, And remember, biblical narrative makes up about 60% or about uh, 40% of the Old Testament. It makes up 60% of the Bible. It's the majority of uh, the Old Testament is prose. It's story. It's true story, but nonetheless story um, uh, where God is the protagonist and he is the main actor. Um, and when I say actor, I don't mean fictitious. Uh, my wife asked that question at Sunday lunch, why I used the word actor in, in my sermon. Um, I don't, an actor is not necessarily a fictitious person, even though we think of actors in plays or in movies or in television shows as being fictitious. But in a true story, there are still people that are, act, people that are doing action. And I'm just looking for synonyms. Sometimes I'll use the word actor. Uh, but God is the God is the main person bringing about His plan, and and that He uses um, other protagonists that come in and out of the stories, and so we see these um, in, uh, in in the life of people like Abram, who we're considering Sunday morning, um, and then and then those who are the antagonists, who who are who are being either. Uh, using evil, being used by evil, or bringing about some type of conflict um, within the story. Um, this Sunday, um, the sermon is going to be on the conflict between Abram and Lot, right? And we don't necessarily think of Lot as being uh, an antagonist, um, but nonetheless, the, the conflict between uh, Lot's desire to grow his influence and Abram's desire to grow his brings about some type of conflict. And then how God, the primary worker in that story, uh, is, is working still to carry out his promise in, in Abram's life. And so we think about those stories, and then those stories ultimately lead us into the law, which is where we ended last week, uh, thinking about how we are to read Old Testament law, the majority of which is not directly applicable to us any longer. That that the um, that the civil law of the Old Testament and the ceremonial law of the Old Testament teaches us. There are things that we can learn from them. We can ask, what are those those 
civil laws and ceremonial laws tell us about the character of God, about the moral law of God, about how humans are supposed to interact with one another or interact with God, uh, but that Jesus fulfilled them, but that we are left with the moral law that God, uh, that, that existed even before God gave it, that, that emanates forth from the actual character of God itself. Um, things like, you shall have no other gods before me. That, is, that has been the law since the garden, and that will remain the law into eternity, that there is but one true and living God, and that there would be none other that would rise to the level of he. And so we, um, we, we, approach, we approach the law when we, when we get to those sections in, in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and we approach those sections asking those kind of questions. And so we, we looked at some good questions to ask both about um, the Old Testament narratives, the stories of the Old Testament, which uh, are true stories telling us true events, but intentionally so, arranged in a certain way for a specific purpose. Uh, and, then, and then the law. This week, we're going to finish our time in the Old Testament uh, and talk about the Psalms. Um, the wisdom literature and the prophets. And uh, when we're not going to be able to be exhaustive, I was not able to be exhaustive even last week with with two. I'm certainly not going to be able to be exhaustive this week, uh, meaning I'm not going to be able to cover everything there is to cover. But my goal is to to try my best to equip you, which is why we call this equip, right? But to equip you that when you're doing your own Bible reading and you run across um, something in, as you're reading through the Psalms, you're reading through the Proverbs, you're reading through Isaiah or Jeremiah or something like that, to give you some basic biblical principles, some basic uh, hermeneutic principles. Think about these kind of as the, as the next step down from, from what we did two weeks ago when we talked about um, some of those key principles of hermeneutics. Um, so, but we're, we're going to get into some sections that, that have exceptions to the rule, right? So with narrative... You pretty much approach narrative the same way every time. I mean, there, there are a few exceptions to the rule, but that's normally, that's not very, very often. Um, but when we get into things like poetry and, and wisdom and um, prophecy, we, we do end up with some exceptions to the rules. I'm gonna, so I'm going to break those down into some even further subcategories, but even those could be uh, categorized um, even further. And each one of those has their own little unique twist to it. And so, again, this is not everything there is to know, but it's what I can talk about in an hour as I try to walk through these things. So I want to start with the Psalms. Um, Longest book of the Bible, 150 chapters. One of the most encouraging books of the Bible, probably something that you read um, hopefully you read the Psalms. The Psalms are an encouragement to us. Uh, the Psalms give us words, uh, when we don't know how to pray we can turn to the Psalms and we can read Psalms and we can, cause so many of the Psalms are prayers. Uh, when, when we don't know how to worship, we can turn to the Psalms and we can read the Psalms because the, the, the Psalms is the Psalter. It is the worship book for, uh, the Old Testament people of God. It, it, it is, it's, so often quoted, um, it's, it speaks to our hearts because it is nearly exclusively poetry, uh, and um, much of that, most of that, actually even written uh, in specific kind of poetry that's intended to be sung, and songs speak to our hearts. Uh, we, we are by design uh, musical people, even if you're like me and you're not good at anything musical, you still... Music still speaks to your heart, right? The, it, we're just designed that way. And, um, and so it's, it's fitting that a, a, a big chunk of the Old Testament, uh, right there in the middle of it, would, would be this one book that uh, really speaks to us in a very different way than all of the rest of them do. It speaks to us in song. Um, but because they are psalms, and many of them are songs, and all of it just about is poetry, it's going to read differently than prose, right? If you were to think about literature, just, you know, if, if we were teaching, you know, sixth graders literature in here, we would begin like this. There are two kinds of literature, right? There's prose and there's poetry. Now, we know each one of those breaks out into all these other different things, but in, in, in just at its, at its core, in the essence of, 
in the essence of literature, poetry is going to be different than narrative. And we need to recognize that it's different than narrative. We don't need to read it like it's narrative. We need to read it like it's poetry because that's the way that it was intended to be read. And it's, it's, we're going to be able to understand the meaning, uh, the original author's intent to his original recipients if, if we embrace the poetry. Now, you may not like poetry as far as like classical or American or British or whatever as you came up through school. You may love poetry. We probably have some secret poet write, poetry writers in this room and they just don't tell anybody they do it. But it's a normal expression. There are a lot of people that that's a, a, a way that they express themselves even just privately is to write poetry. Um, but often the world is kind of divided about poetry. You love reading it or you, you don't like reading, but we should all like reading the Psalms. This is the word of God to us. Um, but when we think about the Psalms, 150 of them, they're not nearly all the same um, within that category of poetic psalm. Um, there are, there's great difference. And so it, depending on who you read, and there's, there's a lot of authors that want to tell you about how to read a book. I didn't bring the book that I was recommending, um, that I recommended last week, but how to read the Bible for all it's worth. Um, it has a really good chapter in that book. If you haven't bought that, I think we may still have a uh, copy of it in the equip center. If not go, go, it's prime day, right? Go to Amazon prime. I really recommend that book to you, but there's a whole chapter in there on reading, on reading the Psalms and they divide it out one way. Other hermeneutics books, Old Testament books, uh, divide it differently, probably more so than any other genre of scripture. Um, the, the way to approach the Psalms in categories is debated. Some say there's seven categories of Psalms. Others say there's 10, some as many as 12 to 15, if you think about some of these micro categories. Um, wh what I want to do is just give you two. Now, this, I'm going to paint with a really broad brush here, all right? But I think by painting with a really broad brush, it's going to help you ask some questions when you read the Psalms, that while you may be able to further categorize these Psalms in, into more distinct, smaller subcategories, you're still going to be able to apply some basic psalm interpreting principles if we think about them in these two categories. The first category is the complaint. Now, don't think of complaint in a negative way, all right? Because uh, for every mom in the room right now, I said complaint, and you were just like, ah, my kids complain all the time, right? That's not... It's... it's it is the psalmist crying out to God about a situation. So it's the psalm, in, in essence, it is the psalmist or intended to be read either as the individual psalmist or as the corporate gatherings are written on behalf of the corporate gathering, complaining to God. No, not complaining to God in some whiny, you know, sniveling, oh, woe is me, why is this happening kind of way. But, but legitimate, like, there, there are things to complain about, right? There, there are things that we should bring to the attention of God. And that's what the psalmist is doing. And these, when we see that, these are known as complaints. Now, within that, when we think about these complaints, they, they, they could be further thought of in, in some, some different ways. One, and probably some of the most popular psalms, are the personal prayers, that this is, this is a, the psalmist himself crying out to God. These psalms voice deep concern or suffering, but almost always, nearly exclusively, show that they believe that God can resolve the crisis. So it isn't just saying, God, why'd you let this happen? It's, it's written, the poetry's written in such a way that it recognizes that this is happening, and then recognizing that God is the one who has the solution to it. It very often will, after, after voicing the concern or voicing the suffering, it will invoke the name of God that 
So, so as you're kind of reading through one of these, you'll see it. It'll, it'll, it'll cry out to God for something specific and then, then it'll invoke the name of God to be the one who deals with it. It affirms, these, these prayers affirm confidence in God that he is the one who can deal with it. Um, it petitions to God to intervene on behalf of the psalmist or the congregation. And then finally, it gives our offers and a thanksgiving at the end. So, so the, the pattern that you'll see is the psalmist will say, this is happening. The psalmist may praise God, but, but will we'll certainly invoke the name of God. The psalmist will affirm confidence in God. You, O oh God, are creator. You, O oh God, are um, the, you know, my rock, my shield. It'll use that kind of language. So it affirms the confident, their confidence in God. It then says, oh God, would you deal with my enemies? God, would you deal with the oppressor? God, would you deal with the, 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 the despair, with the suffering, with the, um, uh, with the crisis at hand. And then it finally affirms, God, you, I, I'm gonna thank you before it even carries out. I, I'm, I'm going to show thanksgiving to God uh, in faith that God is going to be the one uh, who is able to, uh, to uh, work in this uh, situation. And so these, are, these, are, uh, these psalms often have 18, 20, 24, 30 different verses to them, but they will very, very uh, often follow this same pattern. So it's this personal, uh, and when I say personal prayer, I don't always mean it's written in the first person. Oftentimes it's corporate that we're praying together, but it'll follow the same pattern, all right? Um, I'm going to do the other two, and then we're going to talk about how we, how we interpret it. So the, still under complaint, so we have this personal prayer, so we're asking God to do something. Um, the, the second is a lament, that this is not necessarily where we're asking God to overcome some type of um, suffering, some type of evil, but we're lamenting evil in our presence, or the psalmist is lamenting evil in his presence, and the congregation is called to lament evil uh, within them. So it expresses a deep personal or corporate distress. Um, most often, probably two-thirds of the laments found in the Old Testament are, um, are corporate laments. Uh, maybe one-third, maybe even a little bit less than that, uh, are individual laments. But most often, the, the psalmist is calling the gathered congregation, the body, the assembly, which our word congregation comes from the Old Testament word that just means assembly. So when we see assembly used in the Old Testament, they're speaking in the same way that we would speak of congregation uh, in a New Testament sense. And it, it, most often the laments are calling for this expression of distress on behalf of the people of God. There is often a, a call of repentance. Uh, so, so you'll either see um, the psalmist through the people himself personally or within the, within the uh, congregation, uh, either expressing a need to repent or written within the words of the text is words of repentance. So there's this recognition of great evil that's present within the people. So often it's a turning away from God, right? Because that's, that's the, the pattern of the Old Testament, right, is is sin, judgment, grace. And so there's sin and there's judgment and lament so often follows judgment. And so you'll see the psalmists uh, will write on behalf of the people or for the people, calling the people to recognize that sin and then either voicing this need for the people to repent or writing within the psalm itself at lines of repentance. So we see the evil, we're calling to repent uh, of the evil, and then it will often end with an expressed desire for God to heal. So while the, while the, the personal prayer really had five components to it, the lament most often only has three components to it. These are a little more simple of a psalm. Doesn't necessarily always mean they're shorter, um, but you, 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 you can often pick up the pattern of a lament over a prayer because it's, it's, not, it's not so often this outside force that's acting. 
uh, meaning that, that evil has evil is acting against the psalmist, and so the psalmist is praying to God to overcome evil, believing that God will overcome evil, thanking God that he's going to overcome evil. That's the personal prayer. The lament is, is evil within. It's most often congregational evil, assembled evil within the people of Israel, and Israel recognizing that evil, lamenting for it. Um, the lament is also found outside of the Psalms. Um, the primary place we actually find the laments is the book of Lamentation, which is uh, the, the lament of the prophet Jeremiah after the destruction of Jerusalem, right? That, that the people, that God has judged. And Lamentation is a great example for us of, of um, this crying out to God because of the evil, because of judgment, recognizing that God was right to do so, um, but, but also desiring for God to bring the people back out of exile, Right? And so the same pattern that you see there, we see on individual levels and corporate levels throughout the, 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 um, the history of Israel expressed within their uh, hymn book, within, Psalm, you know, within the, the book of Psalms. And so when we get to those laments, we think about them uh, in, that, in that way. The third type of complaint um, is, is the least common of the three, but it occurs, depends on who you listen to, anywhere from a half dozen to a dozen times in the book of Psalms. But when you get to one, you know it. And this is, this is the, um, these are the imprecatory Psalms. The imprecatory Psalms uh, are often pretty short. Some, there's a couple of them that are a little bit longer. Um, but they, they are a direct cry against external evil. And they, they resemble the personal prayer uh, in that they're, they're recognizing this suffering. There's this deep concern for suffering. Um, but it, the, the difference is it's not calling for rescue. It's calling for judgment. And so it is a call. So while, while they'll begin very similar, they'll begin the, the, an imprecation and a, and, a, and a personal prayer of complaint will, will begin very similarly. God, there's evil. I'm being affected by evil. We're being affected by evil. The, the imprecatory psalm changes, though. Instead of saying, God, would you deliver us from this evil, to saying, God, would you smash their babies' heads against the rocks, which is in the psalms. Okay, if you've, ever, you've gotten to that psalm, and you're like, wow, that's different, you know? God, God, would you like utterly judge these people? And then it, it returns back to the same place that the complaint returns and expresses a trust that God will do it, it, that God will overcome it. So the difference between the personal prayer of complaint and the, the complaint that is, an imp, imp, that is an imprecatory psalm is what they're actually asking God to do. On one hand, we're asking God to be delivered. On the other, we're asking God to to righteously deal with evil. Now, let's just, when we get to the end of the Psalms here, we're gonna talk about interpreting uh, some of the Psalms, but I wanna stop here before we move to the second primary category and just think about how we use these for a minute. Uh, because these are written in, uh, they were all written in unique circumstances. We know the circumstances of some, we don't know the circumstances of others, Sometimes we, we tend to over-apply the circumstances. Um, so for instance, m many of the Psalms were written by David. And if we know the Psalm was written by David, and if historians have been able to place it within the context of the life of David, we'll, we have a tendency to start drawing conclusions about the Psalms by going to the narrative, right? So there are Psalms that David wrote after being confronted in his sin with Bathsheba. And we'll read the psalm, and instead of drawing our conclusions from the psalm, we end up going to the narrative account, right, and, and pulling from the narrative account and drawing, drawing conclusions there. And that's not the way the psalm's intended to be drawn. The, the narrative can, can help us think about it, but the, the psalm is, is the psalm, and we, we want to use the psalm as, as it's intended. But it's a specific situation that we're now reading back into, and, and whether we know the situation or not, isn't as important because we're going to apply the same principle to it. We don't, 
put ourselves in the position of the psalmist because we're not in the position of the psalmist. Right? We're, not, we're not David having sinned with Bathsheba. Uh, we're, we're not David being pursued by his relatives who are seeking to you know, uh, overthrow his, his reign. We're, we're, we're not the psalmist in these positions, but God is providing a window for us into the heart and soul of the psalmists, whether we know the situation or not, and showing us, showing us how to complain to God, showing us how we cry out to him, showing us the role that faith does play in, uh, in our prayers towards God, both individually and corporately, that, that we together, because so often in the Old Testament, that's what the, the Psalms were. They were corporate complaints, that we together corporately cry out to God uh, because of evil, uh, external evil, or as it re- relates to the laments, internal evil. I think we should, more, we should use the laments more often than we do. Um, both personally and corporately. I think we, we so often want to overlook the laments because these laments are crying out for um, recognizing sin. It's really the spotlight on both personal sin and corporate sin. Um, but we see it happen so often in the Old Testament that, that it's cl- a clear window into the uh, the soul of the psalmist and what God inspiring him to write uh, for us to, to know. So while we're not them and we're not in that situation, we can use them um, in, in both our corporate gatherings and our own personal lives uh, as, as direction for how we should express uh, complaint, lament to God. Just a quick note about imprecation, the imprecatory psalms. Um, I, I don't think as New Testament Christians, that we should be praying for God to judge our enemies in the same way that we often, that we occasionally will see the psalmist do. I do think there is further instruction for us to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, right? That, 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 that instruction of Jesus, um, it doesn't, doesn't, because these were never intended as instructional for us anyway, but they, they are pictures for us, right? But we can still learn from them. And here, here's what we learn from, from, from the imprecatory Psalms. We learn that God is the ultimate judge and that God will righteously judge evil. And I do believe while we shouldn't necessarily pray the imprecatory Psalms upon our own enemies, we should pray for the gospel to grip the hearts of our enemies and, and that they would come to faith in Christ and find repentance in, in a relationship with him, um, we can still learn from these prayers and recognize that this is the word of God and what was being prayed was prayed in righteousness and, and that, that God will judge evil and, and will do so um, in, in a significant way. And so that that's, tends to be the way that I approach those psalms um, more so than, than me having a place that I can run to and be like, oh God, will you, you know, just deal violently with them because they've dealt violently with me? Well, as New Testament Christians, we, we think about it a little differently, but it still does teach us something about how God will be the ultimate judge of evil. So when you, when you do desire vengeance, we recognize that vengeance doesn't come from us, but vengeance belongs, vengeance belongs to who? The Lord, right? So that's the complaint. The other primary section of the Psalms would be praise. And this is so often what we think about when we think of the Psalms, even though there are more complaints in the Psalms than there are praises in the Psalms. Um, There are still a lot of praises in the Psalms. These are almost always corporate. Occasionally, uh, these are personal, but most always they're corporate. Um, They they will be... uh, Praise either, I guess within the praise, we think about it in two ways. The first is praises of thanksgiving. Um, sometimes, and these, these are really interesting when we see them in the Psalms, is that, that they will either directly or if not directly within the, within the Psalter itself, they will be able to be pieced together where we can see a thanksgiving praise that is directly connected to a complaint. That the people of God cried out because of evil, God answered, and now there's another psalm praising God for how he answered. 
right? So God, we asked you to do something, you did it, and now we're going to thank you for doing it. And not thank you like in faith, thank you as, in, as we so often see in the complaint itself, but a, a direct thanks to God after he responded. So it looks back upon God's provision. So the complaints look forward to God's provision in faith. Um, Thanksgiving hymns look back upon uh, the provision of God in praise. And we also have psalms of praise. These are always corporate. They focus on one or more characteristic of God and praise him for it, right? So one of the most famous of these, right? Psalm 8, you are creator. We looked at Psalm 8, right, before we did Genesis, right? We kind of looked at that as a, as a prelude to, to our Genesis series. God, your creator, that is a characteristic of God. And the psalmist then expounds upon the majesty of God as creator, right? So there there are numerous of these within the psalms, and they they generally have one focal point. They're going to take this one characteristic of God and just in a a poetic structure, just hone in on, on, on that thing. So the longest psalm, right, is Psalm 119. It's really long. But you know Psalm 119 really has one point, right? Even though it's this massive thing uh, with all these different stanzas, each stanza um, being, it's an acrostic, right? Each stanza starting with one letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, But all of it is praising God for his truthfulness and his word. I mean, just over and over. This is, God, you you are a faithful, trustworthy God. That's, that's the point of it, right? Um, and so it's a, it's, a psalm of, it's a psalm of praise, focusing on, uh, as, as they do, focusing on a characteristic of God. So when we get to a psalm, when you're going to read through the psalms, um, when we approach the psalms on Sunday mornings, and if you're new with us and you haven't uh, been here, but since we've been in Genesis, uh, we most often use the psalms as, as breaks in between series. Um, I don't ever anticipate that I'm going to preach the Psalms uh, in order from 1 to 150, um, but we, we, will, we will use the Psalms for one week, two weeks, three weeks. I did it this summer for six. It was the longest that we've been in the Psalms uh, as breaks in between, in between series because they really are refreshing to us. Uh, they teach us to pray. They teach us to worship. They teach us to repent corporately. And, and so we use them uh, in, in that way. But when we do approach them, when you read them or I'm preaching them, how should we think about interpreting the Psalms? <coughs> Excuse me. You want to always read the whole Psalm. Just like I said last week with a narrative text, you always want to read the whole story right? Read until the scene changes. Um, the Psalms is easy. Read until the number changes, all right? Uh, there's very few instances where we should take more than one Psalm together. Like there's some argument that Psalm 1 and 2 should be taken together, but Psalm 1 is Psalm 1. Like read it. And, and yeah, I do think Psalm 2 probably influences Psalm 1 some, um, but, but not to the point where we ha- have to keep reading it. But you definitely don't want to just take well, I like these three verses of the Psalms. And the Psalms lend itself towards that kind of eisegesis, that kind of selective, I'm going to take these verses and see what it tells me about God or see what it tells me about repentance or see what it tells me about faith. And you may find some truth in that, but the whole truth that you're looking for is contained in the whole Psalm. So you want to take the whole thing uh, together. If the Psalms are intentionally grouped, and you'll know that they're intentionally grouped um, because it'll be a bunch of laments in a row, it'll be a bunch of complaints in a row, it'll be uh, corporate things in a row, there'll, there'll be some hints within the text, um, then reading them in the group, each one of them is telling us something, but what the group is doing um, is, is kind of a bigger picture, and, and each, each part of that bigger picture speaks to, speaks to the others. We, we do ask the question, how did Israel use the psalm? Uh, and, and a good study Bible or even some, um, the, the notes that are right above, um, uh, that are right above the psalm. So, you know, in your Bible, there'll be the heading that the English translator put in most likely for the psalm. But sometimes there'll be like an all caps, a little bit uh, smaller print heading for the psalm. That was not original to the psalmist, but it, 
predates the translation, okay? So it finds itself kind of in the middle. Um, It does give us some good understanding for how the psalm was used by Israel. So thinking about how the original recipients used that psalm, whether they used it corporately, whether they used it at certain uh, festivals or holidays, whether they used it going to Jerusalem or leaving Jerusalem, where they ascribe meaning to it can be helpful to us. Corporate psalms have corporate application and individual ones have individual applications. So don't change we to me, okay? Don't change our to, to mine. If it's corporate, it means to stay corporate, meaning that if it's, if it's using plural pronouns in the Old Testament, then it doesn't mean that you can't study it as an individual, but the application to it is beyond you as an individual and is for us as the congregation. So when, when, when you see, and so often we do, in the Psalms, these Psalms that are clearly corporate, you need to ask this kind of question. Okay, what is this saying about the corporate gathering? Not what does this say about me as a Christian, but what does this say about the corporate gathering of the church, of the, the New Testament congregation. And then I do think it is helpful to ask this question. Where is Jesus? How, how does this text help us see Jesus? So often the Psalms uh, are about a king, right? Many of them were written by a king. They were written by King David Um, Not all of the Psalms were written by David, but if you just had to guess, you're you're, you're more likely to be right than wrong if you ascribe it to David over any other author. Thank you, dear. And and so they oftentimes have these royal connotations to them. Well, what what does royalty in the Old Testament point to? It points to Jesus, right? So I think a good example, this is why we read kind of Psalm 1 and 2 often together is because Psalm 1 is, is, this, is this story of, it's this picture of this tree planted by the stream, right? Well, Psalm 2 is this royal psalm about this kingship, neither of which can be fully um, fulfilled by a normal person, right? But there is one who does fully fulfill it. There, there is a Messiah, speaking from a from a psalmist perspective, who is to come, who would ultimately fulfill it. So I think there are places that we find Jesus, both in psalms that speak prophetically about the coming Messiah, psalms that speak with a royal undertone, are psalms that are best fulfilled by one, by one who does keep the law of God perfectly, right? Like the, like psalm, like the, like the man in Psalm 1, who we should all desire to be like, but we should all also recognize we're not fully like, but there's one guy who, who was, and it wasn't the guy writing it. It was the guy he was writing about, right? So we want to ask where, where's Jesus? So take the whole Psalm together, read in its context, think individual, corporate, and then ask, is this about Jesus? They're not all pointing us to Jesus, but, but many of them, uh, many of them were looking towards the Messiah who we know is fulfilled in Jesus. Number two, wisdom literature. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be brief on wisdom literature. Um, and there, there are three primary, uh, four primary books that we read uh, that we would categorize as wisdom literature in the Old Testament. I'm only going to talk about one of them today. Um, I'm going to talk about Proverbs briefly. Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, we're going to have to save for another day. Um, but they, they, are, they are wisdom literature, uh, Job is, is wisdom literature that is narrative. Uh, Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon is wisdom literature that is poetry. Uh, and so just, you can, what you, really what you want to do with Job is you want to take what you know about narrative and what you know about wisdom literature and kind of combine it together. And what you want to do with Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon is take what you know about wisdom literature and what you know about poetry and kind of combine them together. And it, it makes this hybrid, and that's probably... There may be somebody watching this right now that really knows how to interpret those. They're like, don't tell them to do that. Well, that's the simplest way to, to think about those. There, there's more in-depth ways to think about them. Uh, but for our sake and, and time, um, I do want to cover the Proverbs briefly because it's the most read of the, of the four wisdom literature books. All right? 
Um, people love reading the Proverbs. Uh, I know there's a, you know, you can, you know, people say there's 31 Proverbs because there's 31 days in a month. Um, and, uh, you know, so they wrote one for every day. Uh, the problem with that is when that was originally written, there weren't 31 days in a month. There were 28 days in a month. All right. They were on a lunar calendar, uh, in, in ancient Israel. And so it, it just so happens to have worked out in the providence of God that there are 31, uh, Proverbs. So you could read a chapter of Proverbs every week or every, every day and, and read the whole thing in a month. And if you've never done it like that, I think it can be helpful. I'm not one who reads a chapter of Proverbs every day, but I know there are people that do. People often read the Proverbs. We like going to the Proverbs. I think we like going to the Proverbs because we can, we can wrap our minds around the Proverbs, at least a lot of them, right? We, we can really get ourselves into what, what's being said there. Um, but we can also get into a lot of trouble with the Proverbs if we don't structure them well. So how do we, how do we approach the Proverbs? Well, you really ought to think about the Proverbs in, in two sections um, the first third of the Proverbs uh, being um, instructions from Solomon to his son, which are intended to be taken in groups. So none of those should be pulled out of context and just be a verse. You should always deal with this whole speech. If you were here, was that, two, was that last summer? When did I preach Proverbs here? I think it was last summer. Um, God, that feels like forever ago. 2020, right? Um, but I preached through Proverbs and we, we walked verse by verse through the, those first uh, 10 chapters and uh, just kind of methodically, just like we would anything else, because that's the way they're intended to be taken. And then when you get to what's known as the Proverbs proper, which is the last 20 or so chapters of Proverbs, it's a bunch of sayings. Sometimes those sayings are grouped. You know, you'll see things like six things are abominable to the Lord, a seventh, he had, you know. So you'll take those things all together. But sometimes it's just saying after saying after saying that aren't intended to be grouped. And so you need to know when you're, the first question you need to ask when you approach a Proverbs is, or when you approach the Proverbs is, is this proverb in a group or is it not? And it's really pretty easy to know. If it's in the first that first third, it is. If it's in the last third, then you got to ask some other questions. You just look for some markers, uh, look for a heading for a section. If not, then look at the verse above it, the verse below it. Are they similar? Do they share the same context? Then maybe it's a grouping of three or four or five uh, things about money, things about uh, marriage or, or Proverbs uh, that, that speak to some of those things. But once you've dealt, once you've picked the group or picked the individual proverb, then you have to recognize this. It is a temporal principle with an eternal promise. Meaning the Proverbs are not intended for us to read as absolutes. All right? Train up a child in the way he'll go and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. That is a wonderful promise of God that has, has eternal consequences that is generally true. That generally, if you raise a child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, they will hide those things in their hearts and they will follow the Lord with their life. But it is not always true. But some parents will end up beating themselves up over the way they raise their kid because their kid ends up wandering from the faith. Well, don't use that verse to do that because it's not intended uh, to be that way. So, so don't read them as absolutes, but read them as principles, true principles, but principles nonetheless. There are times that the, the Proverbs will intentionally contrast things for us. So you'll get to a group of Proverbs that are saying, most often it's this, folly is like this, wisdom's like this, folly's like this, wisdom's like this, folly's like this, wisdom's like this. We take all of those things together and we, we, you can kind of make a list, you know, if you're a list kind of person. Like, here, are, here are the characteristics of folly, here's the characteristics of wisdom. They'll end up having like a common denominator and you say, oh, this is, this is, what, it's, this is what it's saying to me. So often it uses metaphors, right? So it, it will personify um, um, wisdom as... Uh, a woman, uh, folly sometimes is a woman. It's never the same woman, but, but the, uh, the, the Solomon, particularly in writing to his son in a couple of those chapters, does that kind of extensively. There's the call to wisdom that is the call of a woman, but there's also the call to folly of, uh, of, that, that is also a woman. Um, and so you'll see these metaphors. We need to recognize that it's not, in, it's not being literal. It's speaking a, a metaphor to us. You should always read these as an appeal from a loving parent to a child because that's what it is. This is a loving 
written, not all of it is father's wisdom and not all of it is Solomon's wisdom. Some of it is a mother's wisdom later at the end of the book. Um, but, but it's intended to be read as a parent. You don't have to think father or mother. You don't have to think daughter or son. It is, it is intended to be read as a passionate plea on behalf of a parent to learn the lessons of life from mom or dad. And, and whether you're reading those first parts, which are Solomon writing to his son or the, the latter parts of the Proverbs proper, always read it with that passion and look for that simple truth. Boil it down. Don't, don't create some mystical you know, pattern, life. But, but there, there's this, this is why I think why we like the Proverbs because we can boil it down to this really simple truth, right? That wise people are gonna act in a certain way. Foolish people are gonna act in a, in a different way. Make sense? So I, I wanted to address the Proverbs some. We had already addressed the Proverbs last summer and I was able to demonstrate this, I think, hopefully well to you. Um, but I, I just know of, of all the wisdom literature, that's the one you're most likely to, uh, to read if you do give yourself over to, to reading it. And I'd encourage you to do so. All right, finally, Old Testament prophecy. You either... And I'm sure this doesn't apply to everybody, but it, it, it probably well defines most people in this room. You either read the prophecy a lot because you really like it. And if you really like it and you really like reading it, you may like reading it for the wrong reason. And so you're, you've been getting it wrong all this time. Uh, you may not, we'll see. Or it so vastly confuses you that you just don't read it at all, Right? You read the narrative of the, New, of the Old Testament, you really like the Psalms, you really like the Proverbs, and then, oh yeah, Jesus, and we get there, right? But Isaiah and Jeremiah, man, those, those things are long, right? That's a lot, there's a lot of chapters there, and it goes on and on and on and on and on about the same thing, which is a feature, not a fault, by the way. Um, but it, it'll do this and, and talk about things we don't, have a whole lot of understanding over or talk about places that we don't know where they are or people that we don't know who they are. And so we just, we just skip over it. But you should, read the, you should read Old Testament prophecy. It's the word of God. It's the word of God for us. It's intended for, it still has meaning for us today, but we should read it rightly. So let me recommend a book. I've, most weeks I've recommended a book in here. This book is called How to Read and Understand the Biblical Prophets written by Peter Gentry. He is a uh, professor at Southern Seminary. Um, really, really smart guy. There's a lot of Peter Gentry books that I would never recommend, not because they're not good, but because you would get about 10 pages in and say, why did you recommend that I read that book? Um, but this is one that it's at least short. <laughs> there are going to be some places in here you're like, I don't know what he's talking about. Um, but at least it's short. You can make your way, you can make your way through it. Um, I do think it's very helpful. And he gives a lot of really good examples. I think the best thing he does in this book is he tells you something. And then he says, which is what I would be doing in here if we had two hours or three hours or more to deal with this, we would go to a certain and we would kind of walk through it. He does that in here. He goes to Isaiah and is like, let me show you how Isaiah does this over these, these chapters. And I think that's just really helpful. I will say that Gentry really challenges traditional Western American pop Christian understanding of prophecy. So if you're looking for a guy that's going to tell you all the secret keys to literally interpreting the future, Gentry's not your guy, okay? But notice what I'm saying. I think you ought to read this book. <laughs> Because I think we, we very often get the, get the prophets wrong. So when we approach the old, I'm not talking about Revelation now, I'm talking about the Old Testament prophets. And by the way, there are Old Testament prophets before you get to the books of the prophets. Moses was an Old Testament prophet, okay? So sometimes we get to prophecy in narrative and we have to, appre we have to approach it that way. Um, but primarily we're, we're thinking about the books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, through the end of, um, through the, end of the Old Testament. You always have to keep in this mind. Always have to keep this, this in your mind. The prophets, I don't care which prophet it is, are always, 100% of the time, 
writing in the context of God's covenant relationship with his people Israel. Always. If you ever find yourself reading it out of the context of God and his covenant relationship with his people, you are wrong. You're just wrong. Because that's the context in which it was written in. The prophets are the covenant enforcement agents. I borrowed that, by the way. I'm currently writing a paper from, from my doctoral work on um, plagiarism in sermon writing, and I just realized I plagiarized. Um, I didn't intend to. I don't remember who said that. It wasn't Gentry. Somebody else that I read, so I'm giving them credit. Covenant enforcement agents. That's not... That's, <laughs> right. <laughs> Somebody said it, and I don't remember who. Um, uh, I think it was Walter Kaiser that said that. Um, if not, it's pretty, but, but that's what they are, right? They're sent by God to enforce the covenant. So the same pattern that we see in Genesis is the same pattern that we see for the rest of the Old Testament. Sin, judgment, grace. Once we get into the covenant it, and we get into corporate, talking about more than one person, right? It's more often thought of like this, a falling away, of the people from God, right? They turn their back on God. God sends some kind of judgment, plague, war, famine, something, right? Egypt, somebody's gonna come and, and attack, something bad's gonna happen, and then restoration. So in, in Genesis, in the life of the patriarchs, we see sin, judgment, grace, uh, and an individual level, when we get post-covenant, we see this in the, in the big narrative story of Israel, that they'll fall away, they'll be judged, they'll be restored. And the prophets are the ones sent to carry that out. They come to tell the people one of those three things. You have fallen away, you are going to or are judged, or sometimes they're, they're sent to talk about the judgment post, like in past tense, so that future generations can rightly understand the judgment. So there are prophets after the exile that wrote about the exile so that we can understand the correct context of the exile, if that makes sense. And then restoration, that God will, that God is restoring the people, that this is what the people need to do to be restored to God, or that the people one day will be restored to God. So when you're reading the prophets, whether it's a short little minor book or you're reading these big, you know, grand narrative, grand, you know, prophetic books like Isaiah and Jeremiah or Daniel, you're asking these questions. Have the people sinned? Right? I mean, these are really basic questions, right? You, so, so you may have entire chapters, like not just one chapter, but multiple chapters, talking about it. And you could ask one basic question and know what all of those chapters are about. Have the people sinned? Because if the people have sinned, and this is going on and on and on, telling you how the people have sinned, then guess what the whole thing is about? It's about the, the sin of the people. Now, there's some, some things we could draw from what those sins are, and, and different prophets focus on different sins, and different the people fell away in different ways. Most common, it's what? Idolatry. The most common place that the people fell away in the Old Testament was into idolatry. Now, it's not always the case. The minor prophets more often focus on social issues than, than idolatry. They focus on the oppression of the poor. The, um, the, the, they, they're going after the wealthy and, and their treatment of, of, of the unwealthy so often. But have the people sinned? Next question. If, the people, if it's not describing the way the people sin, then you ask this. Have the people, are the people being judged? Is this talking about some foreign nation that's going to come conquer? Is this talking about some famine or some pestilence, some plague that's going to come in? Is this talking about God removing his hand from them? Is this, is this either talking about it in the future tense, the present tense, or the past tense? And it may go on for a really long time. And if it is, then you've got your answer. Oh, this is talking about judgment, right? So... Is, is judgment about to happen? Is judgment happening? Has judgment already happened? Or is God talking about restoration? Is God going to restore the people? Are the story, people currently being restored? Are the people being told that they need to do something like repent? 
to be restored. So sometimes you'll see this over the course of a, of a grand narrative, over the course of chapters, sometimes just with, right within a really concise three or four verses. Sin, judgment, you know, falling away, judgment, restoration, sin, judgment, grace, you'll see it. Sometimes it's really close together. Sometimes it's these, these big, massive things, right? Now, I said repetition was, was a feature, not a fault, of, of particularly the made, what are known as the major prophets. They're known as major prophets because their books are long. Um, and Isaiah is a great place to, to see this. Isaiah repeats himself a lot. He repeats himself on a macro and a micro level. On the micro level, he'll repeat himself from, from one line of a text to the next. All right, so he'll either be comparing two things together, he'll be contrasting two things together, or he'll be restating his position to build upon itself. Then he does it on a macro level. He'll do the same thing in one chapter that he does in the next chapter for the same reasons, sometimes comparing sometimes contrasting, sometimes building on an argument. And here's what this does. It creates a 3D image for us. It's Hebrew literature at its finest, all right? So the, the place where Hebrew literature really matters more than nearly anything else is within the prophets because Hebrews repeated themselves. It, it, old, it, this, is just, this is how they communicated truth. And to be able to do this in an effective way and really get the point across, and we see this most often with the prophets, we see it occasionally in narrative. I think we see it in the life of Abraham in, in the, same, the, you know, the same story we considered last week, we're going to consider in a few weeks where he says that his wife's his sister, right? And then we see it again with Isaac. There's a reason that gets repeated multiple times, but it's really pronounced in the, in the prophets. And what it ends up doing is it creates this 3D picture for i got to stop leaning back. It creates this, this picture for us. You know how they create a 3D image, right? That, like for the movies or whatever. They film it with two cameras really close by one another. Just like your eyes. That's why your eyes see 3D. Well, that's what the prophet's doing. The prophet films with one camera in one chapter or one verse or one section. Then he films with another camera shooting at the same thing from another section, from, from a, just a little bit of a different angle. Sometimes he'll do it a fourth, a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time all telling you the same exact thing. So sometimes you'll end up taking entire chapters, multiple chapters, five, six, seven chapters together, all saying the same thing, just giving us a better picture of it. Um, Gentry compares it to um, stereo, that you know a left and a right speaker in a stereo plays the same music, but it plays different music at the same time, giving you a stereo effect. So the prophet's saying the same thing in a little bit different way, intended to create a stereo sound for you, all right? Now, often in this, I may go, those of you watching online, I may go a few minutes late. If you need to go get your kid when we hit 7.30, you can. They'll keep watching them, I promise. Um, but I've got about five minutes left. Um, and I wanna, get, I wanna get through the prophets. Um, big sections of the prophets will end up dealing with foreign nations, and I told you that it is always about the covenant. And you say, well, if it's always about the covenant, why do they then go to another nation? Why does Jonah go to Nineveh, right? Why, why does Isaiah and Jeremiah contain these oracles, these woe, what are known as the woe oracles, right? Against various nations. Why, why is that there if it's always this? Because those people exist outside the covenant. And those, that, that God is showing his judgment for those who are out. It's still in relation to the covenant. It's just showing what's happening from the judgment of, from the perspective of the judgment of God on those who are outside of that covenant. God will judge the nations because they are not in covenant with God. But if you read them, so we so often skip these, right? We end up getting these judgments against these nations we've never heard of and we're like, ah, but when you read them, if you, if you read them through a New Testament lens, something will, something will appear to you. And that is there'll be these huge sections of judgment and then there'll be these little lines of grace. You're like, wait, where does the grace come in? Well, Abraham, through Abraham, all of the nations of the world would be blessed. How were all of the nations of the world blessed? 
through Jesus. And we, the nations, now sit as a part of the congregation in covenant relationship with God, not, no longer under judgment, but under grace. So we see both of those pictures. We see God judging those who are outside of his covenant, but we also see glimpses, and sometimes it's just barely a glimpse, but we'll see these glimpses of hope that these nations will one day, peoples from these nations will one day be included in that covenant. So there's great hope even in those, in those woe oracles to the nations. Then we have why people so often want to read the prophets, even though so much of the prophets is not, is not future telling. So much of it is direct related to the covenant relationship with, with God and his people. Um, but some of it still within the umbrella of the covenant is foretelling the end of God's covenant relationship with his people. And there's less of that in the Old Testament prophets than you think there is. We often think all of the Old Testament prophets is telling us about stuff that hasn't happened yet. Well, no. Most of it was telling us about stuff that was going to happen in their lifetime. Some of it was telling us about stuff that, hasn't ha- that hadn't happened yet, but has happened now because it was telling us about Jesus. And a little bit of it was telling us about stuff that was still yet to happen in Jesus. But the prophets are thinking about those things. Um, is it gentry? Again, plagiarism. Somebody writes, I think it's gentry. Compares it to somebody painting a mountain. And there's two mountains, one right in front of each other. And you paint the mountain and all you would see is this one mountain, right? But if you go to the side, you would actually see there's two mountains, one in front of the other. And the prophets didn't, re- didn't know that. The prophets just revealing what God had revealed to them. And all they could see was this one mountain. So some of those things are yes in Jesus 2,000 years ago. And some of those things will be yes in Jesus at his second coming. And we know that's true because the New Testament sees that it's true and writes about it in that context. That there is, there is both the yes and th- there's both the now and the not yet. And we should see it like that. That... Um, we should look for how was the prophecy already fulfilled? Was it fulfilled in the time of the original recipients or close to that, uh, which most of it was? Was it fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus or as some of it will be, is it fulfilled in the second coming of Jesus? And the best tool we have for that is the New Testament. We allow the New Testament to influence our reading of the Old Testament prophecy. And if, if, the New Testament ascribes some not yet meaning to it, then we are free to ascribe some not yet meaning to it. But we need to recognize we're not disciples of Jesus. We're not Jesus. We're not the Apostle Paul. We don't have the freedom to just go thinking about all of it being future tense when most of it uh, was not. All right, two other things quickly. Sometimes when you're reading about things that would happen, and I'm speaking about them in the future tense because they were written in the future tense. They're things that would happen. Much of it has happened because it was looking forward to the first coming of Jesus. They'll, use, they'll very often use two different types of language. Uh, one is typology. So they'll go back into Israel's past to talk about something coming in, into Israel's future. The most common typology used in the prophets is the Exodus. So when you run across the, you're reading, you know, Jeremiah and you read something about the Exodus, it, it's, it's, it, it's using that as an example. So it's using a past event to illustrate something that would come later, right? So Isaiah talking about um, uh, the Messiah setting the captives free, right? That's typology. That's the captives were set free, Jesus sets the captives free, right? The other is apocalyptic language. And we're gonna talk about apocalyptic language when we get to Revelation in a couple of weeks. Um, But there's always a framework for this. There's always a narrative. You can kind of box this thing in. And it's always gonna use these metaphors that are not intended to be interpreted literally, all right? Most often this is in Daniel Uh, a few other places in the Old Testament. But the dreams of Daniel, that's the place to go read this, right? 
It's not literal. It's metaphor. Don't try to make it literal um, because it wasn't intended to be that way. The meaning's in the metaphor. So we read the metaphor, but we also, we recognize the framework. We go, okay, all of this dream goes together. Daniel's the easiest place to do that because particularly in those dreams, because it's dream one, dream two, dream three, and you can kind of see the framework, how it flows. You look for the metaphor, and then you kind of ask some of those same questions. This is talking about sin, judgment, grace. Is this a future picture of the, of the end of the covenant, the coming of Jesus, or the, the, final, uh, the final judgment of the world, all right? I'm now five minutes over, which is long as I'm going to allow myself to go. I know I talked a lot. I should have only tried to do two genres and not three. Uh, let me pray for us. Uh, Father, I pray this was beneficial. I know I recognize it's a lot to try to absorb in an hour and five minutes worth of time, uh, but your word is rich and deep. Um, I pray, God, that you would continue to uh, grow within our church, uh, not only people that love your word, but people that desire to be good students of your word, and they'll read well. Um, they'll read books that help them know how to do this, and, and good ones, um, because uh, God, we, we want to know what you have written to us. Um, and, and the more we know how to read it, the more we'll know uh, what you have said. And so we ask for your help in that. In Jesus' name, amen. We move to the New Testament next week. Thank you guys for joining us online, live or watching this later, podcasting it. Uh, grateful that you were here with us.